Who is Bonnie Prince Billy? Across two decades, singer-songwriter Will Oldham has performed under that stage name, recording 23 studio albums of folk music that are often described as a sort of haunting DIY amalgam of American folk history. Beginning in 1998, he settled on the name Bonnie Prince Billy, and in 1999, he released his landmark album, I See a Darkness, which went on to receive a perfect 10.0 rating on Pitchfork.com, which is the cool website that your niece is completely over. She's over it. In 2000, the album's title song was famously covered by music legend Johnny Cash. This past May, Will Oldham released the album Best Troubadour, an intimate exploration of the back catalog of the late Merle Haggard. When he's not recording music back home in Louisville, you can also see Oldham on the screen, notably in Kelly Reichardt's 2006 film Old Joy, and most recently in the David Lowery film A Ghost Story, which is out now. I'm your host, Anna Dresen, and this is the American Masters Podcast. And it's a hard life for a man with no wife. Babe, it's a hard life God makes you live, but without it, don't doubt it, you don't even have. Tears to give. Wake up and I'm fine. With my dreaming still on my mind. But it don't take long, you see, for the demons to come and visit me. And I've got my problems. Sometimes love don't solve them. And I end each day in a song. That was Hard Life by Bonnie Prince Billy, off of the 2003 album Master and Everyone. I'm Joe Skinner. I'm the producer of the American Masters podcast, and we're really excited to introduce veteran musician and actor Will Oldham. Thanks. It's pretty neat to be here. For a PBS audience that might not be familiar with your work too much, how did you arrive at the name Bonnie Prince Billy? Okay, yeah, I've got this name, Bonnie Prince Billy. I, I come from an acting background, started making music, um, but the way that I looked at putting records together in my mind resembled something more akin to a film production and, and thinking of records as being these things that could be kind of a musical or audio equivalent of a motion picture. Never, never had in mind the desire to perform on stage or just wanted to make things. I wanted to make these musical things. So realized after a few years that audiences and record stores and distributors and the whole the whole machine, including the the audience, as as they sometimes can be considered part of the machine of making something, um, like the idea of associating an individual person or character with specifically this a singing voice and in general musical output so people are satisfied to say that they like Frank Sinatra not realizing that every Frank Sinatra record and song is a production of multiple human beings but we call it Frank Sinatra people like to do that so I thought I needed to have a name so created this name Bonnie Prince Billy because it rolls off the tongue really easily and it has all these wonderful modern Western English language mythic potential associations and 
It's alliterative, so it's kind of beautiful, and, and it's kind of silly and stupid, which the whole enterprise of having a name is. So it feels good. I don't know. I like it. Yeah, that's where it came from. And, and you know, I thought about it as being related to Bonnie Prince Charlie. Specifically, I thought about Bonnie Prince Charlie as a general, you know, Scottish-British figure of history slash mythology, specifically, like, there's this... The Robert Louis Stevenson book, Kidnapped, in which Bonnie Prince Charlie is this shadow character. And I like the idea of this shadow character of Bonnie Prince Billy being ultimately intangible, uh, like a ghost or something like that, but you can still be haunted by his voice if you're lucky. So has acting played a big role in the way you approach music? As you know, I started acting as a kid because it was what I wanted to do because I went to the theater with my folks a bunch and had kind of a voracious appetite for certain kinds of movies and thought that acting was going to be something that it kind of turned out not to be. And I realized that I could take a little bit from here, take a little bit from there and build something new, a new kind of working life that, you know, could be better described as a musical working life as opposed to an acting working life. So yeah, everything is kind of, it's all filtered through this idea of you keep yourself in shape to fully occupy whatever you're asked to occupy. But, you know, at its basis level, singing is far more thrilling than just speaking. So right away, I think even just speaking, you know, playing a part and just speaking in, uh, conversationally, especially when something is underwritten for an actor, can be pretty underwhelming. But singing, there's always some place to go. Uh, there's always a pocket of rhythm or harmony that you can go out of desperation if it's if the rest of the experience isn't pulling you along hard enough or fast enough. This season of the podcast, we're trying to uh, focus on different writers from different mediums. Recently, we spoke with the playwright Susan Laurie Parks um, about some of her work and how she approaches writing. And so I guess we were wondering uh, if you could kind of walk us through what it's like to write a song, something that I've always seen as kind of a more spiritual and less kind of rigid. I, I understand dialogue between characters a lot better than I understand how somebody might write a song, uh-huh. like Even If Love or something, yeah. you know, something so powerfully emotional. Right. Um, and I like I like the idea of the dialogue as well and, and always think at, you know, at the very least broadly and vaguely about that a song is being written to be heard by usually you know an undefined set of ears or sets of ears but I try to idealize as widely as possible what who do I want to sing to and then write the song with those people in mind you know people who are potentially at a tipping point and you know it can be a tiny little tipping point or it could be a monstrous tipping point but a, a tipping point try to invest in the the written song itself and, and always in the performance something that can just give a, a gentle shove into, you know, take the mind that gets so often stuck uh, and pushing it one direction or another and letting it roll again, letting it get momentum again. But the, the, the mo- you know, the most rewarding thinking about this, uh, like the, the characters, you know, I, in the past few years, I've been asked to write songs. Um, and there I can have this dialogue because I can dig into the constructed persona of a given singer and try to write something where I, as Will Oldham 
or Bonnie Prince Billy is speaking to the person who is represented by his or her singing entity, but also I'm also speaking to this singing entity when I write the song. So, like, I work a lot with my friend Matt Sweeney, who plays a lot of music with a lot of people, and we've written a bunch of songs together. And over the past month, we've worked on a song together for a, a group from Mali called Song Hoy Blues. And he said, you know, there's, you, you want to write a song? I'm going to do a two-song session with them. Of course. So this group, um, Song Hoy Blues, is specifically like a current group of young folks, young guys who are singing, who are using music um, to sing about issues that they feel intensely about that are pretty political issues. And, and they're going out into the world presenting their well-constructed, beautiful, taut, heavy, uh, vibey music to audiences that don't understand anything that they're singing. And I think they're being maybe promoted as a great African band, which, sure, they're a great African band. But if you ask them what they were, it's something more than that or something different, you know, it's something more specific. They are a Malian band that's really, really trying to make sense of what they've been witnessing, what they've been experiencing, and create and or transmit a message to people about what they're seeing and how they're trying to understand it and make change. And so, wow, I'm in a position then to write a song with Matt that is saying, okay, well, you know, I'm this white American dude who's writing English lyrics for them to sing also because they have they usually don't sing in English. And I can write something that tries to address all of that as a problem, you know, the problem of them writing these songs. Um, yeah, <laughs> they're writing these songs, they're writing and they're they're playing for a good time party audience and I'm sure that there's a degree of I, I've heard and I, I would imagine there's a degree of frustration on their part that it's like two steps back in some spaces where they may be performing um, and to think well I want them to know that I'm trying to listen or trying to understand and I if I can you know give voice to some of uh, what they're experiencing that they might uh, be Im, you know emboldened by this musical connection and as I was talking about earlier, you know, the, my life is one of staying in shape, shape, staying in shape to sing, staying in shape to write, because writing, I think, is kind of a performance in and of itself that I appreciate witnessing. When it's time to write a song, it's like it's time to do a 100-yard dash or something like that. You know, okay, this is what I've been preparing every day for. It's time to at least begin to put the, you know, the bones of a song together. And so I have now, you know, also with all the things that I think about and the people that I speak with and the music that I think about and the music that I listen to, here Matt's put on the table, okay, ready, go, do, you know, see what you're prepared to do. And yeah, and so we write the song and send it in and they're supposed to record it next week, I oh, guess. cool. Yeah. Is it going to be coming out on like an album soon? I think it'll come out on, their, so their American label is Fat Possum. And I think they're going to do a single. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it seems like collaboration is is more and more something you're frequently engaged in. Yeah. Um, could you talk about the collaboration process more broadly and how that inspires you? Well, the, you know, you you have to make you have to make a well, most people have to make a living, and so that's that's sort of reason one for doing the work that we do, and that's reason one for doing the work that I do. Put, put that aside, what's reason to, for somebody who, you know, I think it's can be considered a, a typical artistic biography for, for a certain kind of 
creator, which is one where, for whatever reason, there's a degree of isolation during childhood. You know, a certain amount of a uh, certain amount of isolation, a certain amount of just lack of crucial connection with, uh, you know, close connection, distant connection, and and so the human mind is. Uh, is inventive and entrepreneurial and so you can have conversations with yourself you can create imaginary worlds you can dig into the relationships that are created by writers and singers who came before you and filmmakers who came before you and i think i always grew up with this sense and seeing seeing as a kid going to the theater and seeing ac- actors on stage uh, the sense that i loved so much that these people were making things for me me and other people but i mostly appreciated it f- for myself feeling like oh this you know i want to be a part of this thing you know i want i felt like it's a i feel like it's a collaborative experience for audience you know for readers and film goers and music listeners that that's a collaboration that's happening already right there and rather than say you know fame is good you know sometimes and money is good sometimes um but i feel like the real the ladder of of Success. The next level is um, getting access to people with whom you can work and and exchange ideas on on all levels. But it's always been about well, well how do I figure? And it, 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 so much so that that there's even coded messages, you know, thrown into the songs that are intended for certain listeners, you know, imagined and and real. That maybe we can someday uh, be in the room together and and work together because then it's those it's the you know there's certain collaborations where it feels like this is absolute you know more than any other thing I think in in what I do for a living a successful collaboration is when it's happening and when it's immediately finished I think oh this is completely why I do what I do this is absolutely like I just achieved everything that I could possibly ever you know there's certain times when I've sung with Don McCarthy or uh, or or even you know writing this song with Matt for the song Hoy Blues you just feel like oh this is what it's all been about is finding this moment where you've made a really valuable connection with somebody else whose efforts and visions you admire if not covet and here it is you you you're you're for a moment, you're on equal footing with these other people, and you've you've made a, the communication that you so lacked and so desired, and continue to every day. You know, I think right. Most people are craving connection, and most people accept connection when it's one directional, which is a shame because the best is when it's going at least two directions. <laughs> the exchange. Another legend that you happen to work with, Johnny Cash. Uh-huh. On uh, I see a darkness. Yeah, you could talk a little bit about that. What that experience was like for you? I will. Um, yeah. So again, talking about my friend Matt Sweeney, friend and colleague Matt Sweeney. He's he's a New Yorker through and through, and uh, I think it was around 2001. He gave me a call and said that he had run into somebody who said that they had just been had just met Rick Rubin and Rick Rubin knew that Matt knew me and that they had just recorded a demo of the song I See a Darkness that I'd written a couple of years before and I'd made records through Drag City Records from the early 90s and, and there was a moment of tumult and conflict and confusion that, that 
had us creating our own record label and it was literally our own record label it wasn't like we were pretending to have a record label and putting it through some other record label we did everything ourselves and mailed you know shipped everything out from our our houses and and that was I See a Darkness was the first record on there um and the song itself was specifically inspired by a great friendship that I have had since the mid-90s I guess with the filmmaker Harmony Kareen and we've been quite close for a number of years and that was before a few years before he went like out into the stratosphere in many ways and then fortunately came back to be uh, an awesome friend and and great filmmaker but it's awesome I mean when I was giggling sort of is awesome thinking about Johnny Cash you know singing about harmony so yeah so then then matt saw rick rubin and and uh invited him to a show we were playing at the bowery ballroom here rick came and said you want to come to uh play you know you want to play piano because there's a piano heavy song uh and he said you want to come play piano on the recording the johnny cash recording and i said of course i do yeah absolutely i will do that he said okay here's my phone number and it took me a couple days to get up the courage to because I'd rather be embarrassed long distance than in person to call him and say that I, you know, I don't know how to play the piano. Um, and it was my friend Colin Gagan who'd played the piano on that, and and that I didn't, you know, I'm not one to count my chickens before they're hatched. I thought there's no realistic chance that this song would actually be completed and released for public consumption with Johnny Cash singing it, um, which didn't bother me. I didn't, you know, whatever. You know, nothing lost. But I had to say that I really, really, really wanted to witness, if possible, because I don't really care about meeting people as much as I care about watching them work. And if, if there was any way I could come into the studio and watch Johnny Cash do anything. And I said, I think in the phrase, in the, in the message that I left, I said, John and June, I'd like to see John and June. And uh, he called and said, okay, well, you know, we're going to be recording in, in two Sundays. Why don't you you can come out then. So I flew myself out to California, went to the his house, Ruben's house, which was where he had his recording studio at the time. And and immediately he says, okay, well, let's meet John, introduces me. I said, hello, Mr. Cash. He says, don't call me Mr. Cash. You can call me John, Johnny, J.R. Okay. And Rick says, this is Will Oldham. He's the guy that wrote that song, I See Darkness. And he's like, oh. He's like, how about we work on that song right now? Okay. So we went down, they stopped doing what they were doing and pulled up their recording of this Cash singing and I think Randy Scruggs, I was told, you know, who's playing guitar? Randy Scruggs is playing guitar, okay. But Johnny Cash was not happy with the way he sang it and I couldn't detect any flaws in his vocal delivery but he was unhappy and they asked me to sing the song myself, use Randy's guitar, sing it and then Johnny would try to match it did that didn't work but they liked the sound of our voices together so in the end they had me sing a harmony part which was cool but then what they decided was that it so you and I are right now are sitting for those who can't see us about 18 inches apart from each other they so they put me in the vocal booth with Johnny Cash and you know John John Cash said you know will you just guide me through this song so we sat like this you know 18 inches apart from each other and the music begins and and he's just looking at me you know kind of like I'm a 
first grade teacher and he's a six-year-old girl like what do I do now you know like wide-eyed fully egoless just looking at me and 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 I would like raise my hands and motion to him you know and sort of conduct him when he would enter in each line so he would sing the line and then he would you know and then he would lose himself in the song and be Johnny Cash but then he would immediately like look to me like now what do I do and I would you know get this incredible moment of being able to say now you sing the next line uh and it was really killer and and the uh recording engineer on that was a guy named david ferguson who um after cash died reuben brought sweeney in a number of times to, to work on a lot of the posthumous recordings uh and sweeney became really close with david ferguson and i and i loved fergie and that's become one of the great defining friendships of the last 20 years of my life and so that's another great thing that came from the cash recording experience outside of collaboration when you're working on a, like a personal song i guess or when you're writing your own song are you in conversation would you say with people from the past or people from the present during that process um well when you, you like you mentioned even if love even if love is a song right mm-hmm. from, from master, uh, and everyone. master and everyone um and that's specifically that song is specifically like an expression of love and admiration for somebody's work, but part of expressing that love and admiration is trying to make something that is what I'm paying tribute to. It wouldn't be a worthwhile tribute if it wasn't also a functioning thing in and of itself. So, and that's specifically, I'm, you know, I was thinking about certain th- times when the great singer and song making human being that is Polly Harvey. Uh, you know, I was thinking about her and thinking about the way that certain works of her, specifically the songs on the record, uh, Is This Desire, and the record she made with John Parrish called Dance Hall at Laos Point. Those records resonate pretty heavily for me, so I wanted to take the opportunity to you know, find something inside that could use coming out, but then try to uh, build it in a way that I imagined she might build it, but, you know, as a tribute to to her, yeah. I mean, usually I try to think of every song and every record as a part of a continuum. I don't want to necessarily be involved with things that are mostly novel experiences just because I, you know, I'm afraid of ignoring the past on a personal level, on a political level, and definitely on a musical level. Uh so feel like it's always good to be conscious of pulling some things from the past into what you were making then, even if it, you know, sometimes it's just directing the dialogue towards uh, somebody who is no longer with us and then making something that ideally will roll into the future and, and with it bring parts of the past. Because if we're encouraged, which seems like we're pretty violently encouraged to forget things that have gone by, even things that have gone by very, very recently. And most people, you know, weren't trained to keep themselves strong enough to just passively ignore or have to sometimes fight this this suppression of the past that we're encouraged to constantly just take for granted that what happened is not as good as what is to come or what we have right now. Um, so I try to put that in the songs, you know, and say like, well, it's, it's, if, without repeating it, you know, trying to understand, well, what made it vital then? And is any of that still vital now, potentially? Yeah, this is, this 
rhyme scheme is, or this vocal harmony is, or this use of slang is still, you know, it's not done, it's not over yet, and let's just keep working on that because it's because it, it, you know it makes the also it empowers the listener ideally because you're not saying you know that your memory is not important when it comes to artistic experience we were wondering if you could just kind of peel back the process a little bit deeper into when you are writing a song i guess when i, I mentioned the idea of songwriting as performative um i've always from the beginning of of making records for better or for worse, I, I include myself in the audience of, of the music that I'm involved with, you know, building and creating. And it's the same with, I like this idea of staying in shape to write a song because I like to be thrilled as you realize, oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm capable of writing a song. Isn't that amazing? Like what, sort of as if it's an out-of-body experience and the song is being written because it is, you know, people talk a lot about the mysteries of writing a song and it is kind of, in essence, it's mysterious just as in essence almost anything that we say, do, or think as human beings is pretty mysterious. And people talk about lyrics first or music first and there are piles of songs that begin one way and piles of songs that begin another way and and piles of songs that may begin because a session is booked in six weeks and you think, well, okay, I want, that's what is that a session for? Two songs? Okay, I need to make two songs that fit together that will be ready musically and otherwise to record in, in six weeks. And there were, there were a couple of songs a long time ago that I was way into understanding. Back in the 80s and 90s, you look at the uh, top grossing concerts of the year, Always near the top, it was Grateful Dead and Jimmy Buffett. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand the Jimmy Buffett thing. And I thought, well, there's got to be something great in there. There's got to be something really, you know, potentially even musically awesome somewhere in the world of Jimmy Buffett. And so it's not an easy task to find the great things about Jimmy Buffett records. Uh, and I went to see him here once in, at uh, Madison Square Garden. I thought, this is going to be it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an experience, and I'm going to realize how awesome Jimmy Buffett is. And it didn't happen. It was awful. It was a terrible show. Musically, just practically unlistenable. But one of the most incredible experiences of communion with an audience that I've ever felt ever and people were so, so happy and so relieved and ecstatic and happy to be there and to be with each other. It felt, I loved it. You know, it was, it was one of the most interesting, most exciting, most memorable shows, because, but nothing to do with what was going on on stage. So I thought, well, you know, we'll try to figure out, try to figure out, is there any possible intersection? And so I thought, well, I'll try to build my version of, Jimmy Buffett songs and built these two songs. One's called West Palm Beach and one's called Gulf Shores. And they kind of rose simultaneously music and lyrics. And they work because people like those songs and they like them for the reason that people like Jimmy Buffett songs. But I think most people who like Gulf Shores and West Palm Beach would be horrified to know that the origins of them, you know, what the origins of those songs were. But uh, that's what the origins were. 
it seems like the, the songs that begin as music, uh, they're especially rewarding because they feel more, you know, what you might call uh, spiritual. They feel more like you really don't know where they came from or why they why they work. Um, whereas if if you work really hard on a on a lyric, and then you just try to set the lyric, you know more what's going on. It's a little less mysterious. Uh, and there's a you know there's a joy and a release that comes with the you know as when you're singing a song and you don't understand why it makes you sad or why it makes you scared or why it makes you angry or why it makes you you know um, exultant. If you really don't know, then you get a free ride, which is awesome. It's really nice. How do you think music today is different from you know a hundred years ago or or even when you first started getting into the music industry? I don't think music is necessarily because music is its own thing. So we we are different, but music is the same. And if you talk about if I were nineteen right now and thinking about how am I going to make my way through the world, it would not occur to me to embark upon a, a musical life as it as it exists today. It's it, the way that most people make their living in music is 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 completely foreign to me, and I I can't relate to, it and I don't don't appreciate it. So the, the way that people experience music, it's not a substantial relationship, I guess, that, that happens and it's not encouraged. You know, you're not encouraged to create a relationship with any given piece of music. You're encouraged to let it go, let everything go, and to uh, own nothing. And, and, and people who make music are encouraged to, to own nothing as, as well. I've, I w- when I was a kid, I was always, I was deeply uh, imp- impressed and distressed by a couple of like a there was a book you know the book Harriet the Spy and things get out of her hands and she loses control of her life and uh, as well there was a movie with Tim Conway it was called They Went That Away and That Away and he and somebody else play uh, deep cover police or some sort of law enforcement people who go deep cover in a prison and the only person who knows what they're doing is the warden of the prison and then he has a heart attack and so then they they have to convince people that they're not actually prisoners and i feel uh, you know that's their lives and their identity but to a great extent the, the music that i am involved with creating as songs uh and recordings those are a big part of my life and identity t- to the extent that i would not give it over to the warden who might have a heart attack try to maintain some degree of say in in the life in the continuing life of of that music even if it means or especially if it means that it if it does become worthless that it's not worthless due to a lack of care or the negligence uh, of someone who acquired authority through the stroke of a pen or the exchange of some you know monies that seemed somehow valuable at the time of the exchange and then you realize later it isn't worth it I there's so much money in music still. There's so much money that I see all the time being paid out and spent. You don't get paid for the same things that you would have gotten paid for 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But there is tons of money in what they call the music business. It's just uh, I don't see a lot of people who are receiving big amounts of money or have access to big amounts of money using that money in very interesting or challenging ways it's usually pretty kind of boring and safe and has a foul kind of odor about it but mostly because it's people who grew up listening or being shaped by incredible musics and then when 
being given the the power to do something either with the money or with the exposure they choose to act like Sonny and Cher maybe would have acted as opposed to the way somebody with a little more substance or yeah just compassion might might act um, how do you think people can avoid that temptation I don't think anyone will avoid that temptation yeah I don't think people care to you know, I mean that's I think people appreciate it when other people do the work and that's that's I think that's a good part of of the people uh, that we spend time with they you know we appreciate it when other people do the heavy lifting and I think there are as in probably any business that in the music business there's a lot of people that just they want it easy they want things easy I guess that's kind of an American thing as well a white American thing we want it easy and we get it easy because we're kings of the world right now well what do you think is the the best way that people should approach music or should approach the listening experience of music I'd say if you you know if you have any reason to be listening to this and you you know and it resonates that there's more power to music than you see being um, utilized in your immediate surroundings or in your life, then I try to throw into the production methods, the distribution methods, the way the way that we perform, the way that we decide where to play, the way the songs are, are built. Try to throw things in that are some kinds of clues that there are paths worth seeking out if if you know, to make a good life for yourself, it needs to include this kind of um, creative exchange that it's out there. And most, you know, most people don't need it. You know, we we stay, we travel a lot, so we stay in people's houses, and you see more and more you're in someone's house, and where 15 years ago you could spend a couple of hours looking through somebody's music collection and listening to their music collection, and really discover something about the person that you're staying with or about a whole style of music that you didn't know anything about but those that's doesn't exist anymore you walk into somebody's house and there is no music it's it's all owned operated managed by the late great Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos and the Scandinavians who do the Sportify thing that it's it's all owned and operated by them we've we've given them all of our music and I don't know that's a little frustrating it's nice for music to be able to take you by surprise and catch you off guard, and that's something that hap- can still happen all the time and does still happen all the time, but, but I think most people have given up, given that up. They've traded it in unwi- unwittingly. And it can be a bummer to think about it, but, I don't, you know, but, but really there are so many people and there's so much music being created every day and being presented and represented and performed that any way, almost any way that it was great ever, it is great now and will continue to be great. Um, most record stores are gone. That's not an experience that you that people will have, but record stores weren't here 150 years ago. Uh, you know, we've opened ourselves up through our devices to, you know, being told so much about the world that we forget that we... You think that somebody has your best interest at heart when they're telling you about all this music or all this film through your devices, and they do not have your best interest at heart. There is nobody who is presenting you with the opportunity to stream or download something that cares about you in any way, shape, or form. You know, and you know if you realize, like, well, 
for me, receiving things, receiving ideas, uh, and keeping things in motion through, you know, the creative impulses that I experience when I witness some sort of music performance or listen to some sort of musical recording or go to see movies or experience something, that the last place you should look for the origin of that experience is, is, you know, on a device that you're paying a monthly fee for. Your experience will be watered down and less valuable than if you choose almost any other way of of doing it. If you if you invest some part of yourself, some bit of energy, some bit of time, some bit of money, or some combination of all three of those things, it actually will be a, a worthwhile experience as opposed to just just like eating fast food versus preparing food. Um, as much as they dress up Applebee's or a Panera or a Chipotle, you're just making a really uninteresting pile of dung that that's going to happen you know that's going to come out of your body the next day and not made that big of a difference to how your body looks feels or works whereas some other culinary experience is going to potentially you know rewire a couple synapses in your brain and and I don't know just make you feel different make you and if you feel different than you think different it doesn't mean your life is going to be uh, radically changed day by day when you have a great musical experience, but it is subtly changed, and it does, you know, help you put in order the things that can feel confining sometimes. You know, a, a great musical experience or a great cinematic experience can just shed a slightly different, you know, a slightly different perspective, slightly different coloring, slightly different light, so that you can know what to do with the only life that you have. And and I think that succumbing to this idea that we have at our fingertips, you don't have at your fingertips all of recorded music, you don't have at your fingertips all of cinema, you have this weird product interface at your fingertips. That's all you have, really. And everything else is going to be up to you or the people around you, you know. Ask somebody, never, never, never listen to what... A machine tells you you should listen to or watch. Always ask somebody. Ask a friend, you know, or um, random people. That's the cool thing about staying at someone's house and you look on the shelves and you see, oh, this music means something to that person. I don't even know what it is. I better listen to this because I need to understand this thing. Or there, you could, fortunately, some people still have books on their shelves. You can look at those. Recently this year, you uh, put out a Merle Haggard homage. Mm-hmm. album best troubadour yeah uh, i was hoping you could talk a little bit about that okay um well merle haggard and, and it's you know he's on my mind much today being here because there was such a fantastic american masters about merle haggard and he's somebody that at any point you know in your 20s 30s 40s if you if you actually like what you're doing and you're doing things that are music or or if you're doing other things actually you, you look at merle haggard as somebody who never stepped away from the work of singing and, and making songs and, and making records. He kept making great records. He kept improving and adapting and evolving his singing power and his songwriting power. You know, I, I, I oftentimes will feel betrayed by people who gain your attention and or your loyalty and or your uh, respect and admiration and then once they have that foundation from you and numerous other people, they shift gears and say, well, this is what I really want to do. Really? Like, well, why did you do that? You know, I, you know when you, 
the more influence that he got, the more power that he got, the more uh, capability that he you know, accumulated through experience and through self-exploration, the more he reapplied it to what he did. And the reason that he was where he was was the reason that he was going to continue and and that included in it exploration and and questioning. I mean, I can think of Leonard Cohen being similar in that way. We could say Prince probably, you know, in terms of people who've achieved a lot of success and still work really hard and have a relationship with their their work and their audience and themselves. There just aren't aren't a lot. And his and his music is 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 his lyrics are so full of of humanity and and ambition and regret and, and sexuality and family dynamic and tension and and uh, an obvious reverence for those who came before him. Maybe if I were going to fault Merle Haggard f- for anything, uh, it would be that at a certain point, say, you know, probably sometime around the mid '70s, it seems like he. He was the present and the future, and all other music was the present and the past. But there was no music, I don't think, that he seemed to connect with. You know, he didn't have a lot of relationship with younger songwriters or, you know, younger singers. Sometimes, you know, he did a duet with Toby Keith, and and he did have a great, a few-year sort of songwriter-singer relationship with, with Iris DeMent. But for the most part, it was Merle's world. At the same time, he, he explored that pretty rigorously. And that's what we could probably best hope for each each of ourselves is, you know, at a certain point we just, if we continue to explore the world that we have greatest access to and control over, which is, you know, a small world, if we treat that with a degree of curiosity and respect, then, you know, it's bound to rub off on, on other people. So we made, so I love Merle. He's, he makes me so happy. Um, to listen to his songs sometimes can be so there's a song let's chase each other around the room tonight it was I came on the radio a couple of days ago and I thought why didn't we do this song because verse and chorus the same structure same melody so it's like he's writing kind of haiku or really short form poetry because a lot of songs don't even have bridges they're just here's a musical uh, idea that doesn't need anything else and I'm just going to make this into a song and give it to people or sell it to people and people love it because it it's so full of you know respect for his side of the line their side of the line there's tons of generosity and respect for the audience and what the audience has the capability to to appreciate uh so we i wanted most of all to make a record that that told merle as i was talking about early on in our conversation you know a coded a coded but pretty overt a message to Merle saying that since he, you know, his last charting song, I believe, was in 1994. Since then, he made six or seven brilliant records. And if you go see him, if you went to see him live, he he wouldn't play new songs. He would play his probably the same set that he played more or less since the late 70s or so. But his new records were really exploratory and inventive and awesome and so I kind of wanted to make a record saying this is the Merle that I love and you know it's hey Merle Haggard I you know I'm cheering you because you're you're making things that are so 
awesome and exciting. It's just lo- it's just full of love is, is what it is. It's like a record that's just about love and respect. How would you, if you had to, identify yourself as a songwriter? I think I'm too in the stew of it to even know that because it's so different on different days. And if, you know, the, I, I might write a song that I know that hundreds of people will ever hear and I'll put plenty of work into it uh, and then I'll write you know I, I wrote songs for John Legend last year you know that's more than hundreds of people will will hear it there'll be lots of people you know I guess millions of people will, he- will hear those songs or have heard those songs now and yeah <laughs> and songwriting is, is uh, you know as, as an art and as a business is so uh, I think mysterious especially to those of us who practice it that it's you know you step into the world of songwriting and it's it's there's so much fog there that you just shout you know I'm here and wait and see if you hear another voice that says oh, okay we're over here we're up here as, as long as you know I just think as long as as long as I can make a but yeah because I don't understand yeah I don't it's it's so mysterious um, other people's songs are so mysterious I don't know where they come from I don't know how they Sometimes you know how they build them, and sometimes it's impressive, and sometimes it's depressive, uh, and sometimes you just don't know how they build those, how they built those songs, or where or why. And yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea where. I don't have any vision of because it's also changing. You know, more people get born every day, and they change what it is to be a songwriter. You know, every new thousand people, every new ten people, every new million people inherently change the definition of what a songwriter signifies and so it's it was a different thing when i walked into this room than it will be when i leave this room thank you so much for coming in thanks for having me here really appreciate it yeah thanks joe so let me go November 17th, Bonnie Prince Billy will be releasing a new album titled Wolf of the Cosmos. The American Masters podcast is produced by Joe Skinner with sound engineering by John Berman, Ed Campbell, and Josh Broom. Original artwork for the American Masters podcast has been designed by Christiana Lombardo. For American Masters, we'd like to give a special thanks to series producer Julie Sachs and supervising producer Junko Sunashima. And I have been your host, Anna Dresden. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher for future episodes.
and visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash American Masters for very cool digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. Come back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast.